Hello and welcome to the Word on the Hill. My name is Father Peter Mutson and that is... Scott Powell. Yeah. Believe it or not. Yeah, that. You should believe it. I, I, um, that? Did you call me a that? I, called you I am a not that. an object. I am a person. <laughs> I'm in the gym with Dude, the my, likeness of God. My, my dad, uh, he texted me the other day because uh, we, t- we talk in t-shirts. Oh, for Pete's sake. <laughs> so, so he says, hey, one of his new t-shirts is, um, I am not an ideology, I am a person. <laughs> that's I know, isn't that a I great? I think that's a great t-shirt. There's no joke I can even make about yeah, that. I know. It's it was just, just, we talk in t-shirts. It was a strange <laughs> That's another concept. good t-shirt. Oh, yeah. Oh, a little meta. <laughs> it's a t-shirt that just says i talk in t-shirts i was reading something on online from a, a friend of mine who put something on facebook it's like so my my children are all listening to box symphonies playing chess and speaking entirely in hashtags to each other she's like i think culturally we're just barely breaking even <laughs> like, that's so good. <laughs> it was really funny wow that is i don't i don't even know how to respond dude Hashtag no response. There's no response. <laughs> oh, All right. Well, it is Lent. Welcome is, to Lent. It That's... is Lent. Uh, hopefully, you're not in debt. Because Lent, it was Lent to you. Uh, yeah. We Lent are um, um, well, on the day that I like to affectionately call Meat Thursday. At least <laughs> if you're in the Western rites of the Catholic Church. <laughs> because it's the day, it's the weird day between Ash Wednesday, where we fast and we abstain from meats, and then the first Friday where we abstain from meats. So this is the one where you got, if you haven't given up meat for Lent, or if you're not, you know, Eastern Catholic rite, this is when you shove in all the meat you can right. before Friday hits again, yeah. which you didn't apt job of doing for us. Yeah, I, I, tr- I uh, attempted um, in my very best manner to um, make uh, bacon-wrapped hot dogs. <laughs> Which is as... you've We, we can manage to uh, ostracize both the Jewish people and the Eastern Rite Catholics, all simultaneously. <laughs> well, they were Hebrew nationals, so in fact they were beef hot dogs. Well, not the bacon. Not the bacon. <laughs> there's an irony to wrapping Hebrew nationals in bacon. There's something very... Oh, disconcerting yeah. about that. Yeah, All right, okay. Our first Sunday of well, Lent. The reason I brought that up is because I think not only are these the first is this the first Sunday of Lent, but these readings are are rather Lenten, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Wow. Right. Yeah. They're, I, they're I only have rough. One, I have one insight for the day. I have one insight for the day. Well, let's see if it's the we'll if, if it's the, if same it's the exact same insight. Then um, then we never do this podcast again. <laughs> we end on a high note. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, our first reading is coming from Genesis chapter nine, verses eight through fifteen. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 25, 4 through 9, with the uh, responsicle coming from 10. It is 4 through 9, good. Uh, our, fir- our second reading, rather, is from 1 Peter, which we don't all often get. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Word. And then our gospel is the first chapter of Mark, mm-hmm. um, uh, 12 to 15, which is Just very a little, short. A little one. It's, a li- it's the littlest gospel ever. It's not, That sounds like a... Weird children's book. The littlest gospel ever. The littlest. <laughs> the little gospel that could. Okay, so Genesis. Genesis. Dude. Oh, boy. Um, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. Oh, hold Do on. you think that That's... song is about the flood? No, I think it's Phil Collins, feel... too. Was it after he left Genesis? Yes, it was. Are you sure? I don't, you know, I don't know. The, the, the I mean, I'm out. sure we're going to get a couple we're of emails. Get two emails. <laughs> It's like, dude, Genesis, I have to say, the audio engineering on Genesis albums is absolutely phenomenal. Like, as as speaking as an audio engineer, there's just a clarity in, like... Did you... Wasn't it... 
This was a couple, maybe it was a year ago. Do you remember? There was like an internet sensation. There were these two kids who have like a podcast or something on YouTube where they like listen to songs and give commentary. And they're like these high school kids and they were listening to to that song and like like talking yeah. through it as they went. And it got to like the drum beat, like boom, 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 boom. And they were like, oh! yeah, dude. Did I you re- see that? I saw that one. I really, I mean, and like they, they like it's got like some... 10 minutes into the <laughs> song right, right. or something. It is Phil Collins and not Genesis. Oh, bummer. Okay, well, so be it. Um, well, we're not in Genesis either, but we still have roots in Genesis as a church. Um, yeah, I can't like dance. Um, the billboard hits uh, that Genesis has Is this had. really what you're doing? N- if no, you can't I mean, tell no. already, Father Peter has mass that he has to say in a few minutes, which is why he's looking up Phil Collins songs. <laughs> Land of confusion. On the internet. <laughs> right. Jesus, he knows oh me. Oh my gosh, you <laughs> have to say mass. <laughs> I don't heavens. I don't know what it is inside of me, but I think I like Brinksmanship. Every time. It's I think I think like, you're playing tur- you're playing chicken with yourself. I'm playing chicken with myself and with Genesis and the congregation who's yeah, going like, to be gathered. Okay, <laughs> um, yeah. So this is the flood. This is the the tail end of the flood story. So um, oh, there's so much there's so much we could say about this, Father. Yeah. Can I just say by way of umbrella terminology? <laughs> often time. Oh, I did. Oh, that was good. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, was. that's pretty funny. Um, Oftentimes people who like to sort of criticize the Bible as being illegitimate or, you know, not inspired by God or kind of just pieced together in this haphazard way, they will often turn to the text of the flood story of Noah to show how, and scholars, really this became very in vogue to do this back in the 16 through 1900s, to show how... Obviously, this couldn't have been, you know, written by one author at this particular period of time because look at how sloppy and clumsy and haphazard it is. And they point to the story of the flood with all these weird repetitions and things are like doublets of each other. And it just didn't seem to make sense until some scholars, I think around the 1900s, 1800s, discovered the largest chiasm in the entire Bible which made up the flood story. Have you seen this? No. You know what a chiasm is, right? Yeah, this, yeah. this idea of a it's thought. Like, it's like a place where you like go caving and you have ropes oh and stuff. Gosh. No, I know what a chiasm, chiasm. is. It's oh, where the chasm. first I... Yeah, the, the first relates to the last, the yeah. second to the fourth, and then there's a center. Thought sandwiches, right? right? Parallelisms of ideas. If you take an X, the, there's a wide part on the left yeah. and a yeah. wide part on the right, and then it comes exactly together right. in the middle. That's why it's called chi. Chi, yeah, okay, absolutely right. I didn't, I'm embarrassed that I didn't uh, realize that. Yeah, it's a chiasm. Do you know what you call a really, really, really big chiasm? What? Uh, it's called a polystrophy. You thought there was a joke at the end of that. Yeah, it I sounded did. like a setup. I know. A polystrophy. It's just a really long chiasm. So the flood story is, and again, when, when scholars sort of discovered this, everybody's minds were blown. They were like, oh my gosh, the flood story never really made sense and it was kind of this weird thing, but it is a gigantic chiasm of all of these parallelisms that's meant to produce a work of art, this literary genius of everything that leads up to the flood, the going into the ark, the loading of the animals, to the coming out of the flood, everything sort of receding is opposite and parallel of each other. And it's it really is this literary, literary masterpiece. How do I study that? Because I've never heard this in my whole life. Have you not? No. I have a handout. I have a worksheet that I give to my <laughs> class. Okay. Let, um, let's put a worksheet up in, in the link <laughs> in the description. I know you're probably making fun of me, but I would love to do that. No, no, like I great. really need that because I it's need really a, cool. I need a polystrophy in my life. It is well, I've got have I got one for you. <laughs> have I got a polystrophy for you? So we're at the end of the polystrophy. So this is the the um, reconciliation of all things and the coming back out of all things. And so we're in this weird moment where they're they're kind of coming off of the ark. Um, God establishes, depending on your sort of theological point of view, God is either creating a covenant with Noah, 
and all things that have come off of the ark, or he is, which is what I tend to lean toward, renewing the covenant that he formed, the once um, massive covenant with creation that he gave at creation. He's renewing it with a new covenant partner in a new way in the time of Noah. And the sign for that we see is that he says, I'm never going to destroy the earth with a flood again. Um, and the sign for it is the rainbow. Um, so I was driving in the um, the uh, the Russian River District of the Redwood Forest, three hours north of uh, San Francisco. Okay, and and it there was this rainbow that as we were driving, it was just absolutely gorgeous. But I also realized that there is no end to the rainbow, like because we were driving, it just kept on. It was persistent, and like and I felt like a leprechaun. I was just like, I want to get to the end of the rainbow. So because you're looking and you see this this rainbow's tracking with you, yeah. and you're going like like there there's something so absolutely vibrant and mystical and yeah. special and like. There's like like a real rainbow as you sit and you get a double rainbow and then you're like and a you freaking internet lose meme, your mind, yeah. dude. <laughs> double rainbow, man. <laughs> like oh, like like it, there's something like really special. Like, do you remember when the internet was used for double rainbow memes? Those were the, those were the good old days. Um, I do. There's a beauty to it. Sorry, I'm not trying to downplay what you said because it's true. Um, but there's all there's a great symbolic value to it here, and so um, it's covenantal. Vol- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's it's uh, it Sorry, is covenantal. I, I lost it's speech. Covenantal a little. It is a covenantal sign, but it was a sign that uh, was analogous to something else. Oh, and so in ancient warfare, what the warrior, the soldier who put his bow down, that was a, a symbolic sign that there is now peace and reconciliation between the parties that were at war. What? Which is what's being signified when God says, I'm going to put my bow in the clouds. I'm putting it down as a sign for you that now there is shalom again. There is restored peace between not only God and humanity, but God and all of creation, according to Genesis 6. Which is this really beautiful scene. Wow. And there's, uh, I was reading a commentary this morning by a guy named Gordon Wenham, who I, I really love his stuff, but he talked about the way the text actually describes this reconciliation. It's almost liturgical. It's almost like bells ringing. It's like, I am, oh, I, I actually took a picture of it on my phone um, because I don't want to get it wrong. But he, he described it analogously like kind of, uh, yeah, like almost like bells going off. And so you have in, in verse 15, there's peace between you and me and every living thing that was on earth. And there's peace between me and the earth. There's peace between me and you and every living thing among the flesh. There's peace between God and every living thing among the flesh, which is on the earth. Verse 17, there's peace between me and all flesh, which is on the earth. There's this weird repetition, which is not just repetition for repetition's sake. It's almost liturgical, which was where how creation in the first place back in Genesis 1 and 2 was described as a liturgical event right. because creation was meant to be sort of a cosmic temple where we saw God. Yeah. Um, now there's a renewal of that. Um, the re- you could hear, almost you can hear the ding-donging in the back Can't and forth. Can't you kind of? Yeah. Are you making fun of me? No, 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 okay. no. Because I, 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 I do. Yeah, I think you, it's a really you, beautiful image. You read it in a way that I could hear ding-donging. I tried to read it in a ding-dongy way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ding-dong, the witch is dead, the wicked witch, witch is witch, ding-dong. So there's two things I have to say about this because I'm, I, I, I can't let, I can't, we can't just, the flood story is a hard story for me. I think it's a hard story for everyone. And I think the thing that frustrates me about this story is that it's very difficult. It's very hard to wrap one's head around and it more than any other story in the Bible gets relegated to children's fairy tale story. 
because there's an arc with animals and giraffes and they're cute and it becomes this thing that the story is not and we lose the depth and the meaning of what's actually happening because it becomes so relegated to children's stories. So what's interesting, so he says, okay, I'm going to establish my covenant and then right after this this segment that we get, what he does is he takes, or it was right before. Right before. Right before. He he takes the animals that he just spent every last (laughs) 120 years making a boat for. Every single ounce of human effort that he could do, could do, yeah. and he sacrificed. Yeah, and he sacrificed because God them. told him to. Right, and it reminds me of this YouTube video that I was watching <laughs> the other day. <laughs> We're up to three YouTube videos we've referenced so okay. far. We're only like six minutes into the podcast. Can I, can I tell you that I am fasting from YouTube for for Lent? Good for you. Because, so you have to just talk about them. Yeah, because to, to like, salve your spirit. Right, and it was this guy, and he was talking about uh, his painting teacher. Okay. And his painting teacher was going through and he showed him how to use charcoal. And he's like, he, he did this beautiful charcoal drawing. And he's like, now wipe it all off. Oh. And he's like, oh. And then he's like, now paint it, do it again. And then he did it again and he found it was like really beautiful. And he's like, wipe it off. And he's like, wow. And then he said, oh, he said, painful. and then he's, they made him do it a third time and he's like, wow. But he started to see it and he said, now take your eraser and bring in the details. Now take your white charcoal and bring in more details. And he was like, I was so fascinated. He's like, I've never done anything more beautiful in my life. And this, this amazing painting teacher came to him and he said, oh, wow. Now rip it up. Oh. And he said, and he was going around to each one of the students in the room who were all having these kind of revelations. And one after another of the, of these of these people in the room refused. They took their drawings and they left. Whoa. And he said, and I took, and I took my drawing and I ripped it up into three parts. And he says, now you're ready to learn painting from me. You're my student. Whoa. And it was, it was only in that moment. And, oh. and so, and, and this guy in the, in the YouTube video is, he said, he, he was like, there was, it was a moment of revelation to me of, of there's some way in, you, in which you actually have to engage with something in new freedom. Mm. Because if, you, if you're so compelled with these things mm. and with, your, with the work of your hands and with what you're doing, then you're not actually formable and teachable. Mm. So I saw this moment when, when, um, when Noah said, you know what? I actually am going to sacrifice these things. I'm going to acknowledge you're greater than every human effort that I'm going to do. And, and, it's, and it's this moment of shalom. It's, it's to say, God, you are above all and in all. And, and I saw that in that painting teacher, like the, the teacher, um, God as teacher. And it was actually something that I, I saw really important that he did, that, that, that in a certain sense, you could, I could almost wash over because I think about like, if I built a boat, Right. And and did all these things, and then I I couldn't sacrifice in the midst of it. That I I became so rigid yeah. that that in fact that would actually be a, it, it, it would say no God you're not God you're not a, you're not in charge and you can even recreate the whole face of the earth without my human effort. Yeah, which I think is beautiful, and I think that is such a takeaway from the story. What I think is dangerous, and I was reading a, a textbook on Genesis um, as I was considering what books to use for the class I teach. Um, there was a statement from one of the authors of this book um, describing God that way. 
And the, the story proves that God is teachable. God is educatable because he realizes, oh, I messed up. This isn't as good as I wanted to. So in the detachment and educate, educatableness of God, he destroys creation and tries again. Right. That is not what this story is about. Right. It is not God saying, I've made a mistake or, or, or I, can, I can do better this time, which is, I think, what le- because that is, in a certain sense, what God is teaching Noah. That Noah does need to, um, all of humanity needs to do what, exactly what you're saying. Right. But it's not because God is educatable. Does that make sense? Right. I was really hung up on that word because I think that was the word the author used. Interesting He's an word. educatable God or he's a, a teachable God or something absurd. Which is to that, deny that, the perfect eternal will of God. Right. And maybe what he was trying to say, he appears that way or he gives the impression or something. I don't know. But but that's where we kind of get to a, a tricky part of this because God is God is God and God can do what God wills. And if God chooses to do this, then it is it is God's purview to do this. But it does come back to sort of the purpose of Noah and the purpose of the ark. And I'm sure we've talked about this on this podcast before, that we actually get a reading from 1 Peter. And in it elsewhere in 1 Peter, I think it's right after the point we get in the second reading, um, 1 Peter, because the only real lens for understanding the Old Testament is the New Testament. Outside of the New Testament, much of the Old Testament is actually in not intelligible, in in its fullness at least. In some ways it is, but in other ways it's not. And so we have the story of a God who gets so frustrated seemingly with human sin. And it's sad. I mean, Genesis goes out of its way to say that things were so bad, every single thought of every human being was only evil continuously. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> oh man, that's this is bad. Burr, burr, so on one burr. level you have a God who is just because justice is one of the attributes of God that in injustice, we can't let evil go on indefinitely. That, right. That's just not just. It's not loving. It's not merciful. So sin needs to be exposed as sin, and consequences do need to ha- be had, and evil can't perpetuate indefinitely. Right. Um, but it still doesn't fully solve the problem of the flood, because it's not mean God gets ticked off, decides to obliterate everybody, because that's a, that's a really problematic view of God. And Peter comes back to our understanding of what Noah was. Why did God give Noah a task that was going to take 120 years is what the text says. Why on earth do a job like that? Not just to save the giraffes and save the animals, although that's a part of it because creation matters. But First uh, Peter says that his job was not just to be a boat builder. His job was to be a preacher of repentance. His job was to preach repentance to a world that was steeped in deep sin because presumably the boat was big enough to hold a lot more people than just animals. And maybe in 120 years, there was even time to build a fleet of boats so that human beings could actually be spared because God doesn't want our destruction. God wants our conversion. God doesn't want, and this is what we were talking about before, right? God doesn't want our obliteration. He wants our hearts back. And the reason he gave Noah a task that would take so long was to win people's hearts back. If people's hearts had been converted, would the flood have still happened? Maybe. I, I don't know. Floods happen, right? I suppose. But did he want people to be spared? Yes. I think that's safe to say that that's what God's desire was, to save human beings. But the story is not just a story about, oh, look, a bunch of cute animals on a boat. It's a story about the utter non-responsiveness of human hearts to the grace of God being offered to them. Right. Will you please get on the boat? Will you please? This is why the church in later centuries is seen as the new ark, the ark of Peter that uh, yeah. is not exclusive to the animals and a couple choice family members. It is an ark that we are desperately saying, get on board this because is, the yeah. world is evil and scary and we have hope in here. 
that's why I, I was I was preaching about this the other day. We actually had this in our daily reading cycle. Yeah, we did, didn't we? I feel yeah, like yeah, this which is, is really fresh. Which is funny, but I but I was preaching about this, and I was saying, um, do you ever wonder why the churches are so big? They're just meant to be like the ark. Big, big boats. Why do we big, gigantic <laughs> cathedrals that take 120, 200 years to build? Right. Because we're saying something like Noah said. Yes. Like, why do you think Sagrada Familia in, in Spain, Spain, Spain yeah. it, why do you think it's taking so long? Because it's the same thing. This takes a long time to right. build because we're trying to express the full narrative of the world. Right. And, and, right. and it's still done in microcosm. Yeah, absolutely. It's because we're talking thousands of years, but the, right. the, that's where sometimes we forget that, there, that the bark of Peter in many churches, if you flip them upside down, they actually look like ours does i love showing people that i love right. f- blowing people's mind and be like imagine saint thomas aquinas upside down and they're like, it's like a, oh my gosh it's a boat it's a boat not I'm all churches boat. look like boats or the <laughs> boats are weird <laughs> right weird pizza well, hut like, resembling boats but it's, it's but really funny like uh, the um sagrada familia yeah, it doesn't it, look he, like a boat no he actually tried That's to do it like boat, man. he tried to do it like branches of a tree so it's actually eden oh i've heard of that yeah, yeah so, now that you say that so it's that. so you can hmm. actually have a couple of different images in of the course. midst of it but you know the recreation of paradise right i'm in for that yeah <laughs> i mean i'll sail there in my church which is actually meant to be part of the ark. <laughs> yeah, that was good, actually. Uh, come on. Uh. Um, I want to just note, though, before we go on, because we'll come back to it, God's statement that I will not again destroy humanity with a flood. And I just want to hold on to that, because that is a promise God makes. He doesn't say that I won't destroy humanity in some other way. He doesn't say that the world will now exist forever. The world will come to an end. But he makes this very specific, very measured promise that this is the sign that this will not happen again. And I was reflecting on that, and I have a thought on that for the gospel, but we'll get to that later. Okay. Is that cool? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking about the polar ice caps. Well, there, there'll be floods. I mean, this is this is actually what's what's problematic, though, about reading this. Like, there was a huge flood in Houston, what, a couple of years ago. I mean, there's floods that There's still always going to be floods. And that's not what's being stated here. Right. It's that this sort of wrath will not... Well, let, let's hold on to that. Because this <laughs> I was, is really hard. I was hard. totally baiting you. No, <laughs> you were like, come on, wait. And then, and then I was like, I was like, polar ice caps. And you're like, I'm going to talk about the flood later. But we have to talk about the psalm first. We got to solve the psalm. And there's... Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I love Psalm 25. You do? Yeah, it's neat. It's be- Well, okay, <laughs> lots of things to say. What, um, I don't want to cut you off. I'm trying to no, hurry because no, no, you have on. mass, but I'm no, trying to you, also be efficient. You, you know how I am. I do. Um, Psalm 25 uh, is traditionally believed, so it's attributed to David. And traditionally, it's believed to be a psalm that David composes um, when people are slandering him without reason or people are attacking him unjustly. That kind of is, this is his response. And so he's saying, but I find myself within your will, God. And I find, I'm not afraid of my enemies. I know you have compassion. I have deep sin. I have real sin that needs to be confessed. But I also know that I'm safe. And, I, and you love me and you'll care for me. And the, the response that we get is what kind of stuck out to me. It says, your ways, O Lord, are love and truth to those who keep your covenant. And the, the nuance that my brain keeps going to in this is sometimes I think we want to read stuff like this. And I think sometimes we want to read the whole Old Testament like this. We want to read that sentence in as to say, your ways are love and truth. Your ways are really good for the people who keep your covenant, for the people who cling close to you. If you're not clinging close to God, then you're hosed and you're going to get wiped away in a flood. 
But that's not what it's saying. There's a nuance to the grammar. It's saying, if you are those who keep the covenant, if you actually are tapped into this relationship with God, then we will see that his ways, even if they come in the form of a flood, even if they come in the form of crucifixion, his ways are love and truth. Not just for the people who are good, Mm -hmm. but the people who cling close to God will have the insight of God to see even the evil of the world can actually fall within God's providence. Mm. Does that make sense? Yep. Because I'm tempted to read it the other way around. If you're good, God's going to bless you. But we know the New Testament makes very clear, if you're good, oftentimes you get crucified. But the covenant is what allows us to see reality for mm. what it is. Mm. Anyway, I thought that was an important uh, nuance. And this is what David is coming to the realization of. And again, we're coming hot on a flood where humanity is obliterated. And you're like, uh, that doesn't sound like a good loving God. And so we need the gift of the lens of Christ to be able to say, no, God is good and loving. And so that is the lens through which we have to try, even when we come up short, to make sense out of everything else. Because you are goodness and truth. And we're going to try to keep our covenant that you made with all of creation and with us. And that's going to allow us to try to see reality for what it is. Which is the explanation of First Peter. Yeah, what's interesting is that um, I've found a, a spiritual experience. This has been happening. There's movements in people's spirits that are more universal than they know. And mm. there's a lot of people I've found recently who have a little bit of fear of God mm. because of their full grasping of the crucifixion. Like, take up your cross every day. Yeah. And like, like people have been experiencing that in, in a very clear way in a, in a more universal capacity right now. So like th- this like... I'm afraid to go to God because of what he may ask of me. Yeah. That that people are are yeah. like attuned to what his will is in mm. this and it says he guides the humble in righteousness and teaches the humble his way. Um that the the humble of the Lord, so that's verse 9. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um it says so, so the, the the humble of the Lord in in this deep sense are saying like Oh, like I actually am really disposed and I'm, my my will is so disposed to the Lord but like he's asking something deeper and harder of me than I'm expecting, like that I want. I don't want to actually have to do this. And, I, and I'm seeing this in, in a lot of places. That is an A-OK response, I would argue. Right. Because you know who else says that? Jesus. Je- <laughs> Jesus. But, that, that's a, but that's real humility that's- of recognizing, oh, man, you're really big. And I know the things that you call people to. And I can see. And I also know how saints are made. But gosh, I don't know if I can do it. The only, I think, real way to grow in holiness is to look at God's work in your life and look at where you might be headed and say, I don't know if I can do that. Mm. Without being able to say, I don't think I can do it. There's no reason for us to actually call on that covenant relationship with God and say, I can't do it. You're going to have to carry me. Mm. I mean, that's, that is the way of holiness, isn't it? So that's, there's, that's really beautiful that you're experiencing people who are seeing that truth. Yeah. Which really is what what Peter is trying to say to this community in the second right. reading, I think. He's but well yes and no cuz he's saying he suffered for sins once. Like if you think that y- it's on your shoulders, you've got to be forewarned because it's not actually the the like yes, yes. he may ask difficult things of you, but it's not up to you. Yes. Well, the nuance of this, so if we take it in context, so there is what he says in the reading, but if you take it in context, because context right. matters. <laughs> so First Peter, First Peter, um, First Peter was believed to be an encyclical letter. 
And encyclical doesn't only mean a letter just from the Pope. It's it, Nowadays, it's from the Pope. And Peter was the Pope, so it works. But uh, the word comes from the idea of a letter that was meant to cycle through different church communities. Um, and so this was believed to be an encyclical written to the church in the region of Anatolia, the Anatolian Peninsula, which is present-day Turkey, basically. Don't call me that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> ah, Nice. Um, and he calls, he begins the letter by calling them God's chosen exiles. Um, and we know that this is a group who is being persecuted. They're suffering and God uh, Paul, Peter <laughs> talks about them being exiles. And we don't, nobody knows exactly what the people in the Anatolian Peninsula are facing, but they could have been exiled. Some people actually think that this is a group who was exiled from Rome when Caesar actually, uh, uh, exiled, um, uh, cat, what's the word for the, he kicked him out. He kicked him out of the city of Rome. Exiled. Them. Exi- no, not exiled. Well, yeah, exiled. There's a word I'm trying to think of, but um, eczema. <laughs> yes, they all had eczema. And they got kicked out. But there was a time when all of the deported uh, Cornelius did uh, not Cornelius guy. You're the deporting and the eczema are throwing. <laughs> um, but the, the Jewish people were all even Christ believing Jews were all kicked out of Rome. Diaspora. No, <laughs> it's okay. It doesn't matter. Um, but they were all exiled from Rome because of their identity and because of this. And we know there's vast persecutions that are going. So these are people who have literally, it seems, had to leave their homes. The things are so bad in terms of following Jesus Christ and their identity. They've had their homes taken away from them. The government has kicked them out of their place. They've been exiled. They've been cast and pushed to the margins. And Paul addresses them as the chosen exiles. In other words, God's chosen you to be his exiles. It's not an accident of history that you happen to find yourself in this position. It's not that so much of the theme of the whole letter of first Peter is that whatever happens to you, it's not outside of God's will. It's not something that you have to live in fear of whether good or evil is going to win in the end, right? It's that whole thing. It's that If God has chosen you to be his exiles, if he's chosen you to be homeless or living in the Anatolian Peninsula for this period of time, it's because he has chosen it. And if that's true, you have nothing to fear in that. And that's actually what leads us to this section, because Christ suffered for sins once. It's done. It's not actually on your shoulders to do that again, like you were saying at the beginning. Right. But that is a little more full-bodied when you know that it's coming to a community that is getting profoundly beat up by the powers that be, by things that are higher and more powerful than they are. And Paul actually gives them permission to rejoice in that, Hmm. not to fear it, not to hate it, not to long for the death of their enemies and their destruction, but to find joy in that because Christ suffered for your sins once. And what you get to do is to participate in this incredible event that actually already took place. It doesn't hinge on you because the story is already written which is a very hopeful message. Yeah. And then how does he say you get into this? It's because of baptism. And your ba- does he talk about baptism here? He does, right? Or is it earlier? Maybe he talked about baptism. baptism verse 21. Yeah, which is you're thinking baptism, you're thinking the flood. Yep. Because this is one of the earliest prefigurements of what baptism will become and what the ark is. This source through water into new life, into salvation. He talks about the days of Noah. God patiently waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few persons, eight in all, were saved through water. That does sort of imply that, gosh, it would have been nice if there were more. Yeah, right? I mean, I, I think the Anatolian Peninsula probably was a little beat up. 
I mean, like in is the there sen- a pun there? No, in the sense of that there was probably a few people there. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, probably, yeah. Yes. It's probably right. little numbers. And like the reason why he's oh, pointing this out, he's okay. like eight people were saved. Like it's okay. It's okay if you're small. Right. It's like, okay if you feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see mean, what you're we're, we're the day after Ash Wednesday. And I have to say that like I've been feeling the smallness of the church until yesterday. Like, oh, I see. Like the grace of God mm. have drawing people back to the Eucharistic right. uh, synaxis, yeah. <laughs> to the to the <laughs> to the to draw together. That's what synaxis means. Yeah, it's yeah. the it's the congregation that sin, we say now. Sin. Yeah, like, axis. Draw to the X. Draw to the axis. It's kind of like chiasm, it's, except in reverse form. Right. 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 It's like a, the wheel and axle of the six simple <laughs> machines or the lever or the pulley. Or the pulley. <laughs> Everybody's favorite simple machine is the pulley. the pulley. But like the, the you know, I used to buy pulleys just because I thought that they were so cool, but then I never really had anything to do with them. You know, I want to buy pulleys right now. I'm trying to but, think what we could use a pulley on. You know? <laughs> I don't know. Any number of things. Yeah. It's like, uh, but <laughs> wow, I derailed myself entirely. Yep. Um, smallness of number, you were the smallness oh, yeah, of the yeah. church until yesterday. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's where where we are in the synaxis. Yeah, that people are being drawn back in, and that actually there is a wider thing, and the witness of each other is actually really profound. Those mm. who have entered the bark of Peter, the boat of Peter, yeah, um, right. like it's really powerful. Which yes, um, interestingly leads us into the gospel. Yes, because what happened? How long was Noah in the boat? Four days. No. Did you see four, this? This is a symbol you're, for zero. You're mad at me? No. That's <laughs> <laughs> a fist. He was shaking his fist at me. I was just holding it up. Yeah. No, it's 40 days. Yes. So Jesus in the desert in the 40 days and then Noah in the boat for 40 days. Yes. There's a connection there. Yes, there is a connection. And my my reflection is whether the connection is deeper than I thought it was. Reflection of the connection that was deeper than I thought it was. That sounds like slam poetry, bro. It is slam poetry. I'm glad you got it. Um, but what what has just happened here? But it's a, it begins by saying the baptism. spirit drove Jesus into the desert. It is the baptism that prompts the spirit driving Jesus into the desert. You cannot get to the 40 days in the wilderness where he is tempted and tested by Satan without the baptism. It's the baptism that does it. Can I tell you something that I think is cool? Yeah. When they walk through the water dry shod Israel, yeah. you know, for the 40 days in the desert, yeah. they weren't touched by the water. Wait, say that one more time. They walked when dry they through sh- through the Red Sea. Yes. They weren't touched by the water. I mean, it might you have don't been... think it dripped on them at all? I mean, maybe well, a well, little. It was probably moist. <laughs> it was on the a sprinkling. There, that, there were some puddles on the that's ground. That's why we we don't <laughs> just do sprinkling for we do full immersion. Oh yeah. That would, of... I, if if I was an arguing apologist person, I would say sprinkling doesn't work because we have to have full immersion. If we were looking at the scriptural theology of. Things. If I have to push you on this point, I'm going to, because the, the Israelites weren't fully immersed. They weren't touched by it. Right. So why should you be fully immersed? Oh, yeah. but Because they and, just got and, a sprinkle. And Noah wasn't through. either. No. But the boat was fully immersed. The boat was, well, no, not if it was built well. <laughs> <laughs> Ideal, ideally not. <laughs> See, look at me. I'm a heretic. Well, hold on. Okay, now, now here's what I'm I want to get I'm just playing with ideas. No, I love it. I, love I it. don't even know. But you, but what you said there, um, and I, I feel like there's a bunch of stuff churning in me that I'm not. I'm having a hard time bringing it out. What I'm, 
because I don't know if this connection works or not, but I keep going back to this statement in Genesis that God was not going to, what did, what did he say? It's not just that he's not going to flood the earth again. He says... I will not wipe out all of creation using the waters of a flood. Is that something. what he says? No, I don't know. I will never again shall all bodily creatures be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Now, I don't know what the Hebrew says or how, how true that is just at first glance. Never again shall all bodily creatures be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Um, in this sense, the flood is obviously literal. There was an actual flood, but it lasted for 40 days, as you said, and all bodily creatures were affected by this flood. Jesus then is immersed in the waters of baptism, thus transforming water into something that is not destructive or simply cleansing, but is actually life-giving. It is a sacramental now. After that, he goes out into the desert, into the domain of Satan. That's how it's seen by the ancients. The, the, this arid region around the Dead Sea, where he probably is, is this region that's believed to be controlled by the demonic and by Satan. That's not true. Satan doesn't have dominion over creation, but it was seen as this really scary place. And so what we see is Jesus going into the domain of the evil one for 40 days to do what? To be flooded with temptation to be flooded with the testings that humanity had failed at in all of those ways. So never again is all of creation, is all human flesh going to be destroyed by the flood because Jesus will take on the flooding of punishment for the evil of sin and its consequence during those 40 days, which is a foreshadowing of what will ultimately obliterate him in the cross later on, Mm. which he will then obliterate the obliteration of death by rising again. But in a certain sense, you could argue, I wonder, Jesus is immersed in a flood by going into the wilderness for those 40 days so as to take on himself what is rightly due to us, which is not just God is so mad at us because we've sinned, we all deserve death. I mean, yes, that's true, but it's that our sin brings consequences, a flood of consequences that ripple throughout all of the rest of humanity. Jesus goes into the desert to be immersed in it in a certain sense. Mm. It's metaphorical, I suppose, but right. but I don't know. I'm, I'm and I'm not. Maybe I'm not articulating it well, but I'm I'm struck by that particular connection to the flood. He goes to be flooded with temptation, with testing, with darkness, with desert, with with all of these things, fresh from his baptism. Because God said, well, I, I'm not going to do it to all of humanity again, because Jesus will take it upon himself. Mm, I see what you're saying now. I said that was the better way to say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm right. not going to do it to all of humanity because Jesus will take it freely on himself. Right. And this, they will not be subject to it. But then it's like Jesus saying, I do not, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down own. freely. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that he, he is... Yeah, I think it's beautiful. So in that sense, he is the ark. Ooh, yeah, there we who are. is immersed in water. I, metaphors are flying, and some <laughs> I don't. You know, they're, they're, I'm, I'm being a but, little. Oh, hold free on, hold on, hold on. Listen to this though. What what the dove comes to him? Oh, he I is forgot the, about the dove. He is the ark that is immersed because the dove comes and then to Jesus comes, at baptism, and then, it, and then it resides, and then he goes, and what does he? Now he offers all of creation. As as Moses did in this big chiasm, but it's a third part of the chiasm. So if a, so, all of the Old Testament, certainly the Pentateuch, is this cycle of chaos, which leads to order. God brings order out of chaos. So everything starts with this chaotic mess in Genesis one, right? Out of which God brings order, and out of the order, humans choose to sin, which brings more chaos, which causes God to bring more order, 
which causes us to sin. It doesn't cause <laughs> us to sin, but we do sin, which yep. brings so this, you know, chaos to order to sin to chaos to order to chaos to sin. Um, Jesus is now taking it backwards because where the flood is sort of the uh, the climax of that in a certain sense of our sin leading to profound chaos of the flood and God bringing order and the dove comes to breathe the sign of it. Now Jesus goes back into the water for the dove to come so that he can return into the watery chaos that the desert represents of sin so as to bring us all out of it, so as to bring his church unscathed out of it because he is the body of Christ. He is the boat. He is the ark mm. that Peter drives or captains or that the metaphor is breaking down here, but well, something, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Am I making sense? Yes. It was like, Ooh. which, so this, this to, to bring it all the way back around. Yeah, even, I need some help. In, in Peter okay. is what our job is, is not to necessarily go out into the desert for ourselves and try to take it on. But what right. we, what we're doing is we're accompanying Christ through these mysteries. How is Jesus present throughout all of these things? Because our 40 days of Lent, what we're doing is we're actually accompanying Christ as he goes through these things. Because as Peter said, he already did this. He already did this. And so our task is to actually be witnesses, to see and to to experience Mm. him doing this. That's why, like, that's why all of these stories uh, have been handed down is to say, you're a participant, not as the main character, but as the one who is the the accompanier. Which, maybe we'll bring it full circle even more, that's the better way to see the vocation of Noah. Noah was not the main character in the flood story. God was the main character. Noah was the participant who is doing the will of God to ideally bring salvation and witness to the people around him, Mm. to accompany God in that way. We may get about Noah. It's not about Noah. It's about God and how desperately he wants his people back and how he invited into Mm. his partnership a guy named Noah to build a boat. Not about Noah, but about the rest of humanity that he was called to save. And failing that... Noah was then a new covenant participant or partner with God to rebuild after the fact. That's good. But it's the participation, it's the accompaniment that Noah was meant to do. Noah's not the main course. Well, that got weird. (laughs) I wish I hadn't said it that way, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Well, you guys, uh, this is going to be a good Lent. I'm really fasting. Yeah, you can tell we've all been fasting, (laughs) and and that you had meat, and your your brain is now confused. It's a little meat. You have a meaty brain. Thank you. That's what I've thought. That's weak. Always. That's what I hoped for. Okay. God bless you all. We look forward to walking with you through these days. Indeed. Have a blessed Lent. We'll see you next week. God bless you. Bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Uh, That is the way that we can grow and get the word out to more people. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.